0: Chapter 14 of Jerry Macaulay, His Life and Work, by Jerry Macaulay, and edited by Robert M. Offord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kristen Hand. Chapter 14, Characteristic Sketches and Personal Recollections of Jerry Macaulay, by A.S. Hatch. The ways of God are oft beyond our ken, and wiser far than ways of mortal men. Whom man rejects, the Lord doth often use his cornerstone the builders did refuse. I became acquainted with Jerry Macaulay about the time of his restoration from the sad relapse into which he had fallen after his release from Sing Sing prison. The desperate and reckless life which he had led in the interval as bounty broker, gambler, prize fighter, rough, drunkard, and river thief is graphically portrayed in his autobiography. All this, with his previous criminal and prison life, had left an unmistakable impress upon him, and his appearance told plainly enough what he had been. To the ordinary observer, he was perhaps as hard and hopeless a looking case as one would be likely to encounter in tramping the worst streets of New York day and night for a month. And in his dull eye, rough aspect, and illiterate speech, there was little promise of the future evangelist, or of the wonderful career of consecrated usefulness in the salvation of depraved and outcast men and women, and of Christian influence, reaching to all classes in life, which has since made his name familiar, and his life and work a sacred memory, among those who love Jesus and believe in his power to save. It would have been a penetrating eye and a lively faith indeed that could, at that time, have transfigured Jerry, in imagination, to an instrument of moral and religious force in the world, even in the hands of divine power. It is with no irreverent memory of my dear friend that I sketch this picture of him as he then appeared. It is only a dim reflection of the portrait, which, with inimitable effect of mingled pathos and drollery, he used to paint of himself as he was when the missionary found him in his den in Cherry Street. Not that he gloried in the picture, or in the revelations of sin and crime of which it was the product, but because he gloried in the power of Jesus to save and loved to magnify that power and to illustrate it by what was to him its most real and conscious manifestation, the contrast between what sin had once made him and that to which grace had redeemed him. Shortly before the time of which I am writing, Mr. Oliver Dyer, a vigorous writer on current local events, had written and published in Packard's Monthly for July 1868, an article entitled, The Wickedest Man in New York, which had a wide circulation and excited a profound interest. It was extensively reproduced in the daily and weekly papers throughout the country and eagerly read by all classes. It was a revelation to many of the moral and Christian people of New York and elsewhere, who had before known nothing of the inner life of the dance houses, rat pits, and other centers of vice and human degradation, with which Water Street and its surrounding thoroughfares were at that time crowded. It brought down on that previously benighted region an army of curiosity seekers, clergymen, missionaries, religious enthusiasts, and others, who contemplated the scene of the wickedest man's exploits with varied emotions and comments. Some good people were distressed with the thought that Oliver Dyer had only succeeded in advertising the dreadful business on which the locality thrived and, by investing it with a spice of romance, had only made its naked repulsiveness more alluring to the vicious tastes of many who had previously shunned it as too deep a depth for them. But the keen wits of the proprietors of the dens which filled the neighborhood, and their practical eye to financial results, soon grasped the true outcome of it all, and they hit the nail on the head when they said with blunt sincerity, "'It has spoiled our business.' All these white chokers and black coats and all this respectability, the hymn singing and prayin' and preachin' are keepin' away our customers. And these fellows don't buy any beer or whiskey or dance with the girls. And after a few months, many of them had thrown up the sponge and quit in disgust. Meanwhile, some of the missionaries and workers connected with the Howard Mission had been exploring this moral wilderness, and among other noted apostles of vice, had fallen in with John Allen, the wickedest man of Oliver Dyer's article. Allen was of respectable family and a man of good intelligence, fair education, and considerable means. Two or three of his brothers were ministers of the gospel. At this time, he seemed to glory in the audacity and hardihood with which he sinned against light. His dance house was a place of the vilest resort, and he ruled with an iron hand and a heart of stone the wretched women who inhabited it, and the hapless sailors and others whom they enticed into it. By some peculiar tact, aided by the mysterious influences of divine grace, the missionaries and the Christian gentlemen who accompanied them in frequent visits to this vile den found their way to the good graces of its hardened master. One day they proposed that he should permit them to hold a prayer meeting that evening in his dance hall. In a spirit of good-humored bravado, he told them they might try it if they liked and take the consequences, but refused to have anything to do with it himself. That evening, after the scraping of the fiddle and the shuffling of feet had ceased, one of them stepped quietly into the room and, kneeling in the middle of the sanded floor, said, Let us pray. And before the astonished company had taken in the meaning of the unwanted spectacle, he was pouring out, in a voice thrilling with emotion, his eyes streaming with tears, an earnest prayer to God for the souls of all present, from John Allen down to the wretched fiddler in his corner. The effect was magical. Instead of the expected scoffs and jibes, which Allan had predicted, and which the brave missionary had braced himself with the enthusiasm of martyrdom to meet, there was utter silence for a few minutes, save the voice of prayer, and then a sob here and there, and finally tears and sobs all around that room, whose walls had heretofore echoed only the profane and obscene speech and the hollow laughter of undisguised licentiousness and riot— These events marked the beginning of the John Allen Excitement, as it was called, to which Jerry refers in his autobiography. Allen himself so far yielded to the moral and religious influences as to become thoroughly ashamed of his wretched business and to abandon it. He offered his house for religious meetings, which for a while were continued there, took part in them himself, and expressed a desire for reformation and a better life. He was, after all, a man with a tender spot in his heart. He has come to me and told me of his struggles with the demons that had taken up their abode in his soul, and has laid his head on my shoulder and sobbed like a child, as he told me that he would give all he had in the world to bring back the pure influences of his childhood and to blot out the record of his sinful and debauched life. He was, however, a vain man, and courted the notoriety of being held up as a hard case reformed. He was saturated with vice and with the appetite for drink, and although manifestly touched and moved, he did not seem to show those evidences of thorough reformation and of the work of grace in his heart, which those interested in him hoped at one time to witness. He never went back to the miserable business in which he had been so long engaged, but opened a respectable grocery store in Roosevelt Street and died a few years afterward. It is not for human eye to discern or human tongue or pen to say that the influences of the remarkable religious outburst in which he had unwittingly cut so conspicuous a figure were lost upon him, or that on the banks of Jordan or midway in its swelling stream he did not meet and know the Savior who had died for him, and here repeated the gracious words that had opened the gates of paradise to a dying thief on Calvary 1,800 years before. After meetings had been held in his dance house for a while, it was thought best to transfer them to another place, and the lease of a neighboring notorious dance house was bought out and the work transferred to it. This was number three sixteen Water Street, where Jerry Macaulay first publicly testified of salvation, and where he afterward commenced his own work, and where the Macaulay-Water Street Mission now stands. I have thought that the foregoing brief sketch of the beginning of active Christian work in Water Street would be of interest to many not familiar with its history, and would not be inappropriate here on account of Jerry's reference to it and its connection with his own restored life and his subsequent work for the Master in the same locality. It seemed at that time to those who were actors in the scenes to which I have referred almost as if a veritable miracle was being wrought in the opening to religious influences and work of this abandoned and vice-ridden part of the city, as if the Holy Spirit went before them and prepared the hearts of the godless throng who inhabited and frequented it, and held the mouths and hands of those who would before have cursed and stoned the messengers of the gospel. I have myself spoken from the steps of John Allen's dance house to a crowd filling Water Street, almost from Roosevelt to Dover, and been listened to with quiet respect, where a few months before it would have been considered as much as a man's life was worth to attempt to hold a religious service in the open air. We held prayer meetings in Kit Burns's Rat Pit, a rough amphitheater in the rear of a bar room, with the dogs growling and the rats squealing in their cages under the benches, while Kit's customers, thronging his bar room, looked on in respectful silence any tendency to the contrary being promptly suppressed by Kit himself. End of chapter 14